I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Mark Twain began compiling his autobiography in 1905. He described it as a systemless system, resting on three motives. First, as had been the case since the death of his eldest daughter Susie a decade earlier, writing, and especially free writing, was for him an intensely therapeutic activity. To descend into the narration of whatever moved him was to process the losses which befell him. And during the final 15 years of his life, these losses included his wife, two daughters, a brother, a sister, a beloved nephew, his best friend, numerous collaborators, and other extended family, many of whom were much younger than he was. Autobiographical writing was also for the most famous man on earth, as Robertus Love called Twain upon his death, a concession to the emergent voyeuristic lust for celebrity gossip, which had been mobilized by the explosion of mass media forms during the 19th century. Twain knew, as few writers before him could have, that there would be an enduring market for his private ramblings, regardless of how self-indulgent, meandering, and scandalous he chose to make them. Twain had prophesied that his would become a model for all future autobiographies. And it seems he was right. When the first volume was published on the eve of his 175th birthday, more than a hundred years after his death, it spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list alongside other self-consciously scandalous and self-aggrandizing autobiographies by Nora Ephron, Tucker Max, Sarah Palin, Keith Richards, and Jay-Z. Finally, the least well-known motive behind Twain's autobiographical method was his intention to create a practically inexhaustible archive of unpublished material in which his books could be paratextually wrapped thus preserving their copyrights according to the law of his day and creating income for his surviving children and grandchildren. However Twain regarded autobiography as an artistic mode, he knew it was a profit generator. By investing in the confessional, he could in a way securitize the labor which had gone into his novels and which he valued very highly. In this too, Twain's autobiography has proven prophetic in the century from the preparation of the autobiography to its publication, personal narrative has become customary in every literary genre, oftentimes actively solicited by literary agents, editors, publishers, and their marketing teams. In this episode, I'm talking to two decorated literary critics and theorists who aren't so happy with this trend. Merve Imre is Associate Professor of American Literature at University of Oxford and a contributing writer at The New Yorker. Her books include Paraliterary, The Making of Bad Readers in Postwar America, 
The Personality Brokers, recently adapted into an HBO documentary, and two editions of Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, both published just in the past year. She also just received the Robert B. Silvers Prize for Literary Criticism. Pertaining to our conversation today is a chapter on the personal essay in a forthcoming Cambridge Companion. Anna Kornblue is professor of English at University of Illinois Chicago and organizer of the V21 Collective. She is the author of Realizing Capital, The Order of Forms, and Marxist Film Theory and Fight Club. This is her third appearance on The American Vandal, and she is in the finishing stages of a new book on today's topic, titled Immediacy, or the Style of Too Late Capitalism. For more about our guests and a bibliography of works mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash auto-everything. Our conversation today is provoked in part by much longer works in progress, which we'll be drawing upon in short order. But I think it's appropriate to begin with a tweet, as the tweet, I think, epitomizes in form, and in this case, content, much of what you both are elucidating in your current work. Uh, and this was Merve's tweet from last year. The personal essay boom never ended. Instead, the personal essay quietly colonized other genres. From whence we get auto-fiction, auto-theory, auto-everything. This tweet happened to follow hot on the heels of Anna in a talk I'll link in the episode bibliography, using a phrase that really stuck with me. She described our contemporary appetite for memoir as a manifestation of bootstrapping across dystopia. <laughs> this is just a phrase I really love. And I want to start there. Both of you are arguing, though with somewhat different designs, that personal narrative has become the grammar of gig work, the tropology of casualized labor, the preferred mode of the fully financialized and entrepreneurial self. And this first-person perspective is thus very closely related to the theme of the American Vandal this season, which is work. And I'd like you to ask each of you to sort of tease out the connection between this form or these forms and the peculiar contemporary contexts of work. Anna, do you want to start? Because I'm sure. still thinking about whether I should defend my tweet or throw it under the, <laughs> throw it under the bus. I, I'd be glad to start. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting way to frame the question already because we have this sort of sense common across both of us and across a bunch of other critics and writers, I think, that we're living in a golden age of memoir and a moment of the triumph of the personal essay or the boom of the personal essay or the idiom of self-disclosure being an organizing frame for a lot of different kinds of genres. So if we have that observation, how do we explain it, right? And is the critical task to try to explain it? You know, I'm partial to certain kinds of traditions that might want to seek an explanation, uh, not a total determination, but an explanation in macroeconomic structures as they then influence or effulge as cultural style. So to me, the kind of situation of work that is really relevant to the question of the prominence of the personal as idiom is um, the macroeconomic transformations of 
deindustrialization, of um, decommissioning of institutions and organizations, the kind of privatization of state functions, the assaults on and casualization of labor in the publishing industry and higher education in particular, not as special industries, but as having special consequences for publishing and for writing and for literary production. So I like to look for explanations for this personalization in those kinds of restructurings of work after 1973. So what do we know about changing natures of work, right? That there is an intensification, that there is an omnitemporality, the 24-7 workday, that this is kind of totally in line with what are widely recognized as crises of production are then exerting a lot of pressure on circulation. So how can we have really rapid exchange and really fluid and direct messaging and really kind of instantaneous logistical management and digital networking and high-frequency trading and these kinds of infrastructures of effulgence, of instant contact, of, you know, rapid relay that to me are a really interesting base that helps provide context for an explanation for why this becomes the aesthetic mode that we're the most interested in, self-emanation, disclosure, no no filter, these kinds of modes of manifestation that often are very stylized by the pretense to have no style. You know, the author is the character, the self is without boundaries when it comes to forms of abnegation and, you know, and, and revelation and, you know, self-flagellation and so on. So that's the kind of way that I might approach it. And I think maybe Mervay might have a different approach to the question of like, what do we do with this literary cultural phenomenon? I think I'm probably more of an institutionalist than you are. And that's not to say I disagree with any of what you've just said. It's just to say that for me, the primary context of analysis is always going to be to see how that particular aesthetic modality manifests when it is produced by or consumed by, rewarded or valued by and across different kinds of institutional contexts. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's a slightly longer institutional history that I'm interested in concerning personalization and the personal. And the institution that I find most helpful, maybe unsurprisingly, is the university Mm -hmm. and the way that the university rewards the performance of personhood and the way that the university, in fact, makes access to the means of literacy conditional on the successful performance of personhood. So one of the things I write about in this essay that I know both of you have read on the personal essay is the rise of the personal essay as a genre that is absolutely crucial to admissions and to admissions decision-making in American universities, at least, in the early part of the 20th century. And how, if we are speaking just on the level of of scale, that is where the vast majority of personal essays in the American context are being produced. And it's hard for me to believe that that doesn't have some kind of connection to the turn in the mid-century to forms of confessional writing And then in, say, the last 20 or 30 years, the dominance of confessional writing over other kinds of essayistic forms, which I think, Anna, you and I have spoken about this, but which require kinds of expertise to produce that are no longer central to literary education 
right. in higher levels of the educational system. And like I said, that's not to that's not to discount or to, to discard any of the macroeconomic explanations that you're offering. It's just to couch them in a slightly more specific context of production and reception. So to me, it's the the school that is utterly fascinating for the way that it rewards personalization, really from primary school onward, I think. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I just think that that line about de-skilling is just absolutely central, right? Because it shows what the university has in common with other economic sectors, right? The line Anna is referring to reads, the confessional has proven a highly successful strategy for extracting literary production from an increasingly de-skilled workforce that needs to do little more than share their experiences. We have this issue of like what percentage of the American literary world, say, is produced by college educated people, or when we're tracking the dominance of this idiom, part of what we're thinking about, part of what Gio Tola and Tito are thinking about and so on, are the availability of digital platforms to propagate these idioms, whether or not people have the traditional credentials that might be conferred by institutional degrees or university degrees, right? So does everybody talk this way or is it only college educated people? And de-skilling, I think, is just like really, really such an interesting frame to think about this in because, of course, you need time and resources and training to produce authoritative, even essayistic ruminations on meditations on historicizations of cultural phenomena or, you know, power. And that's what we've been deprived of. But the problem is the constitution of or the rhetorical production of the self as like somehow a substance that can fill that vacuum. So I'm really interested in how, in how we get that logic that like, this is just what emanates, right? right? This richness. Right. But it's not even a substance that can fill that vacuum. It's often perceived of as a force of resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how I reviewed a novel that, and I know you and I both have mixed feelings about, which is Patricia Lockwood's no one is talking about this. Mm-hmm. In my review, one of the things I said, and this was in a kind of Lukacian vein, that it doesn't feel like a novel because it is not doing the work of absorbing and transcending other discourses mm-hmm. that it is interested in bringing within the novel's frame. So a couple of months after that review ran, someone reviewed the new Knossgard novel. And they begin by saying, a reviewer said that Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This didn't feel like a novel. I think we should just stop worrying about what novels feel like and we should think more about how novels make us feel. And it was presented as if this were a kind of great articulation or expression of resistance to an industry logic that tells you this is what a novel is supposed to feel like. And I spent the whole time I was reading this strange subtweet in the form of a review, basically, (laughs) wondering about whether the reviewer was deliberately kind of misconstruing the argument to make that neoliberal embrace of self-expression into a site of resistance to commerce or to the market, or whether this argument actually would not have made sense to anyone who did not have a kind of grounding in novel theory in the first place. And I couldn't figure it out. But it did make me realize that the kinds of people that are tasked doing things like evaluating literary culture, analyzing literary culture, simply do not actually have to have any sort of education in doing the work of analysis and evaluation anymore. And when I tweeted that, Matt, 
I was thinking about how many book reviews now begin with some long personal anecdote mm -hmm. or something about the author's per personal relationship to the novel under consideration. Mm -hmm. And many of them never get away from that either. Right. That's just the vein they kind of continue in. And so when I wrote that tweet, I was thinking about how that Tolentino essay proclaims that the personal essay boom is over, oddly gives a kind of economic diagnosis of why the boom existed in the first place, but then claims that it's over because of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a real kind of inconsistency in the logic there. But to my mind, it just found these new objects to latch onto that made it more palatable. But of course, what then you end up missing is everything that you go to literary criticism or literary reviewing for, which is a kind of rigorous consideration of the object itself, rather than this person's relationship to the object. I mean, the problem is, do we really go to literary criticism for that in the algorithmic age? No, no. So there's a kind of obsoletizing of the function of critical evaluation by algorithmic prediction, match score on Netflix and so on, right? That is not the same as, but is structurally parallel to the attack on literary study or humanistic inquiry as legitimate forms of cultural development. So that the decommissioning of universities and the defunding of universities and the attack on liberal arts models and general education models incapacitate scholarly criticism or just educated criticism by your average consumer, not just a scholar, right? And then the platforms are also sort of like doing it better than we are, as it were. Well, it depends on what you think people... I, I wonder about that. I mean, I wonder about whether the algorithm and the critic are entirely replaceable or if there actually is a way of producing criticism that refuses to assume the same kind of sort of ranking evaluative function that the algorithm assumes. And maybe the answer is that you resist that logic of personalization. So you think a lot less about what is it that a particular or projected audience would want. And you think more or you think alongside a certain set of theoretical apparatuses mm -hmm. pertaining to the making of art. But I wonder, do you think that they're completely interchangeable at this point? Or do you think that there actually is the possibility for pushing back against or for carving spaces out that exist outside of that platform-based algorithmic model of artistic evaluation? I think it's a great question. Of course, reflexively, you and I both would want to say, oh, we're not algorithms, right? <laughs> and, you know, the other side of the coin, Ted Underwood and I joke about this all the time, is like, that the Amazon algorithm, for instance, is really bad. And what if a bunch of literary nerds got together and sold Amazon a better way to show, tell people what books they would enjoy reading, right? Like, we could make things. So I think that, that we want to say that there's an, a non-fungibility <laughs> there. But I think the problem is that that's because we've construed criticism as not exactly a kind of knowledge, but as a kind of experience itself. So that, like, the reading of a text that we then write down gives the reader of that text a secondary experience of reading our reading of the text. And they're sort of involved in this cultivation of sensibility and they're involved in having literate experiences that don't have a kind of higher order permutation into knowledge. And we don't make any claims on knowledge, both as professional critics and as scholarly critics, I think. So what would be our like self-disciplinary conception or something that would enable us to really robustly say, we produce something that's not the algorithm. And unfortunately, 
unfortunately, one of the things that I'm very concerned with is how the critical attacks on our own process and the kind of idioms of theory and the trends in theory and so on seem to be actually about continuing to affirm that logic of mirroring and personalization and how does it make you feel and so on. We're taking out from under our own feet the very possibility of articulating what it is that we do that is not algorithm. I mean, but another answer could be that there's some connection between the production of knowledge and persuasion as one of criticism's primary goals or internal properties, that judgment is always about persuasion and justification. And there is some way to perhaps bring together the experience or the communication of experience and its pleasures with the production of higher order knowledge. And I was thinking about how I went to a talk earlier this year in Berlin where one of my favorite critics, John Guillory, was describing what he understood to be the sort of ideal model of the literary critic. And he described that ideal as a docent. And the way that he then further defined the docent was to say that it's a figure who's capable of communicating both the experiential pleasure that we take from reading literature while also producing higher order knowledge about literature. And so I guess what I am always trying to walk myself back from too is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? <laughs> or, or saying like, there, there must be ways to both communicate experience or to offer that and also produce knowledge at the same time. But my problem with many of the contemporary genres that we're talking about is that they're wholly uninterested in the latter. Right. I would object less to them if they were doing both, but it's because they're not doing the latter and only interested in the former that I find them so thin and unsatisfying. And even, you know, if we think of them as a kind of trend, quite dangerous. Right. And I think this is where we have to go back to the question about work, right? Because this repudiation of knowledge is also an attack on or an evacuation of and then channeling of what it is that cultural work is or cultural production is or creative labor is or the creative economy, right? And it's all paralleled by the emptying out of the institutions that would capacitate creative labor. The publishing industry, Sorry, yeah. you know, it's like, well, there's no professional editors anymore, barely. There's no professional markers anymore, barely. There's no professional copy editors anymore, barely. Every author just is their own self-promoter, right? And they have to already have this big platform before they can even get the contracts. And then they are responsible for their own errors. I mean, some of the just elementary logical fallacies that are in like contemporary fiction by people who have big platforms and stuff you're just sort of like that's not how a toddler nap works and they don't have a toddler like wow nobody read this book somebody right. assessed its brand potential right right i don't disagree with any of that and i think that that also explains i think almost entirely explains the personal essay boom as you were describing it which is that it is simply easier and cheaper to pay people to produce stories about their experience than it is to pay them to produce an analysis of a literary object. It's also easier and cheaper to educate people, i.e. credential them with a degree when their experience is the subject of their education, right? rather than when you have to have small classes and libraries and instructors and materials and books yeah. to teach them something other than experience. And I'm thinking about a really wonderful piece in PMLA by Annabelle Kim, 
it's on autofiction. Right. And it's on the French novelist Anne Gachleta's Not One Day, which is, I think, a pretty wonderful example of autofiction or auto theory that's really interested in destabilizing the assumptions that underwrite the genre in the first place. So it's all a kind of big joke about the saleability of subjectivity and why it is that people are so desirous for it, why it is that people are so hungry to consume subjectivity at the same time that people are hungry to produce it. And I think it actually manages to do that all too rare thing, which is to create a very, very beautiful, very sexy object out of critique. But, you know, the question that it always raises for me, and I think this is the flip side of the de-skilling question that we were talking about, Anna, is why is it that people are so hungry for this? Why is it that people are so desirous for it? Because within certain institutional structures, right, like the university, the kind of rewards of it are fairly transparent. But I'm always just wondering why it is that people kind of sitting around at their computers all day want to read this stuff, want to read this stuff. Right. Um, and maybe that's a super naive question with a very simple answer, but it's the one that I can't quite seem to wrap my own mind around. Well, you offer a kind of answer to it in the personal essay, right? That, you know, we're just gossipy, <laughs> puerile voyeurs that want insight into other people's most private moments and most private experiences and most private thoughts. But I, I did want to circle back to something that both of you were saying. First of all, maybe as a way of thinking about Merve's question, one of the things that feels like Anna is grappling with is our need to solve the riddle in the algorithmic code, right? That we have to place some sort of qualitative analysis into this quantitative method. And in so doing, oftentimes what we presume, rightly or wrongly, maybe by virtue of the sort of status of the influencer, is like, oh, it must be about personality, right? It must be about some aspect of that almost narcissistic self-presentation, self-emanation, as, as Anna was saying earlier. How much of that is real and how much of that is presumption, I find a, a very interesting question. But to go back to, to Merve's mention of the sort of institutionalist bent of your essay, there was not, like nothing short of shock and awe for me this existence of the personal essay industrial complex that you kind of described. I'm going to go teach right after we talk, I'm going to go teach a class on how to workshop the personal essay, a personal essay that those students have to write. It's part of the required curriculum. I will never be able to look at admissions or freshman writing curriculums or mastheads in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask both of you, I'm asking all of the guests this season sort of something about their work, right? Like, how do they view their work? And for both of you, I was particularly interested, you both clearly understand the emergence of the personal narrative and these, these genres, forms, modes as embedded, particularly embedded in education and in publishing. And yet you both are also embedded in those things. And how has your sort of historicist work around these forms and theoretical work around these forms changed your own approach to doing that work? Yeah, that's a really great question. I, I have two answers. The first concerns education. The second concerns publishing and my own work. The first thing that I just want to point out about education is that 
it was fascinating to me when I started teaching at a UK institution that admissions do not require personal essays. They are not part of the admissions process here. In fact, the whole admissions process here is entirely different and is really not at all dependent on the production of a kind of well-rounded, enlightened humanist subject, the way that admissions in the United States, particularly at elite institutions are. So here, our students apply, they send in their test scores, and we actually interview our own students. And the way that we interview them is we give them a poem and they have 15 minutes to read it and they come in and they perform a close reading in front of us. So we interview and admit based on a particular set of skills that I think Anna and I would probably agree are essential to the way that we conceive of the discipline of literary study. And that has an incredible upside, particularly around questions of equality. So there is no incentive for students to spend thousands of dollars with coaches who are going to help them become people on paper. Close reading coaches. Close, yeah, they don't have close reading coaches here. And it has a downside insofar as the kind of specialization or expertise that we tend to see at higher levels of the educational system is already established in secondary school for my students. And so this is the constant trade-off in our discipline. Historically, sociologically, it's the trade-off in our discipline between the humanist arm and the professionalist arm of our discipline, between generalist knowledge and technical expertise. So that's just one thing that I would say, and I say it only to point out that this conversation about institutions of personalization and their relationship to form, for me at least, cannot be separated from a kind of national context, mm -hmm. talking about education. And Anna, I wonder how that fits with a macroeconomic explanatory context for these things. And I'd be curious to hear about whether your project kind of looks outside of the U.S. or if it is primarily within the American context. The second thing I'll say about my own work is that it is, I, I think, where I feel the, the most tension uh, is that I have a very particular understanding of the figure, the fetishized figure of the public intellectual and the kind of bourgeois subjecthood that attaches to the public intellectual. And our belief in that figure is someone who's able to transcend all kinds of institutional economic constraints on the production of their work. At the same time, that's a position that people, I think, perceive me as inhabiting in many ways. And I've been trying increasingly to figure out how it is that in the realm of middle brow publishing, you can do something like perform the kinds of expertise that we bring to the classroom in a, a review essay of a contemporary novel, say, and whether there are ways to just model not leaning into the personal essays colonization of everything. But of course, it's silly to think that any one person can achieve anything on that front, because as we've both been talking about, these things are determined by much larger social, institutional, and historical forces. I suppose my question to Anna earlier about whether or not there are spaces of relative autonomy that can be carved out is ultimately a kind of self-interested question to say, are there places where we can preserve something that feels less compromised to us or where there are models of collective thinking and knowledge production that 
can be on the one hand sort of persuasive and pleasurable and on the other methodologically rigorous and committed to kind of uncovering the, the truth values of what we do when we do criticism? Yeah, I think these are hard and beautiful, important questions. It's true that I have a maybe a different profile than Marvay in a way that suggests a different tact. I extremely believe, and this would reverberate into the national question or the context of what secondary education is too. And, you know, I work at the research one university in the country that has the largest Pell eligible population um, and is the only R1 in the Midwest that has is both HSI and NAPV. And I feel that my teaching is public criticism, that my teaching is public engagement, that my teaching is public communities. I really, really deeply care about and love my teaching. And that is the space where my collaborative collective knowledge making happens. I wrote a textbook for undergraduates and it sells extremely well. The DSA just adopted it for their night school. Like I go on Zoom to places all over that are not universities that are reading it. And like that has been a way in which I have thought about how can I write for an audience that I want, right? And bring people into this kinds of idioms that I want instead of inhabiting that dominant one. This is maybe a cheeky thing to say, but the book that I've just mostly finished, finished, it doesn't have an I pronoun in it. What does it mean to construct sentences that are about ideas where there's not a centered oracular subject? That doesn't mean that Anna, it's abstraction cool, it's doesn't- seem like you. But it still sounds like you. Like, I couldn't read that book and believe that it was written by anyone else. <laughs> it still sounds like you. It still sounds, I just don't think you can erase the personal by erasing it on the level of the grammatical subject. I have to agree to some extent. As I was reading that opening segment of, you know, set in the, the immersive Van Gogh exhibit, there is a very careful, and this is something I have done in my own writing, a very careful attempt to project that I'm about to turn to the personal, but I'm going to withhold it. And so you are using the audience's expectation of the personal narrative and then thwarting that expectation, but also maybe taking advantage of all that it brings to the text and all that those expectations bring to the test. I, I had the same kind of reaction, in, uh, particularly in that opening moment, that like, this is, this is Anna. We have been deposited in the subjectivity of this critic, but she's going to stop short of saying, I'm the one doing yoga in the Van Gogh exhibit. Matt, I feel like this is the meanest thing we could have told her. I feel like your face is like crumpling. Are you No, sad? no, I no. I think this is so, so, so important and really, really interesting, right? Because it gets to what's the difference between style and persona? What I actually think it is grammatical, right? I use a lot of paratactic structures and a lot of maybe dialectical threesomes in my sentences and a lot of big nouns, you know, a lot of abstractions. And I like polysyllable constructions and I like vivid purple words. And I have had a couple of arguments with friends about like, does like having really viscous critical prose, is that immersive or is that distancing? I think that style is a thing that is an opportunity for collective engagement. Style is the mark that something has been made, that it has been produced, that work has gotten into it. I'm not at all interested in being unstylish or in thinking that there might not be critical gestures that have a repertoire. Like the dialectical sentence doesn't belong to me. It belongs to a tradition I want to participate in. And that seems to me like a totally different project than, you know, detailing at length how I personally masturbate and publishing that with the university press. <laughs> 
Yeah, no. I mean, I too enjoy the occasional dialectical threesome, but would never publish. <laughs> would never <laughs> publish my masturbation diaries of the university press. I I agree with much of what you're saying, and I do think it's important to differentiate style from persona, although I don't know that they can be disentangled all that readily or all that easily. And I think that what Matt said about the ways that a reader ends up inhabiting a particular subjectivity through style doesn't stop us from engaging with ideas, but it also doesn't completely erase the singular human being that is behind that and that is producing that writing. And I think, you know, insofar as we will continue to have author functions, it's very difficult to get rid of that projection. But what I'm saying is I don't actually think you need to get rid of it altogether to do the kind of work that you and I both want to do. You're just shifting the weight that you're placing on certain kinds of critical discourse versus others. And I think that's what's really valuable and that's what's really necessary. To me, I think the key thing is also like, how are you authorizing your claims, right? It may be people will read this and think, oh, this destabilization is like too corn blue or something like that, or, you know, play with our expectations. But to me, it's like, what I'm trying to do is marshal the weight of that has been institutionally accorded me by things like research fellowships and so on, right? The weight of historical expertise, (laughs) the weight of expertise in Marxist paradigms for making sense of culture, I am trying to inlay into the medium of cultural theory and Marxist historicization and dialectical historicization, right? The phenomena that surround us now. And that means that what I am marshalling as knowledge are written traditions. It's not my personal experience. I'm not presenting myself or, you know, divesting, like unbosoming myself and presenting that as knowledge, which is what a lot of our colleagues are doing. One way that Merve parses this is through the essay uh, by Virginia Woolf, The Decay of Essay Writing. Uh, and there's a specifically a passage I remember in that that you point out comparing the difference between narrating your gardening techniques and narrating your parenting techniques, <laughs> or particularly your speculative parenting techniques, right? How would I raise this child? And I, I wanted to come to that essay in part because it conveniently parallels Mark Twain, right? At almost the same exact moment, Wolf was decrying the increasing egoism in the proto-modernist essay, Twain was beginning his own autobiographical project, one which was specifically designed to extend the copyrights on his novels, to protect the value of previous literary labor with the shell of a more vacuous literary labor, which he believed had value only and mainly because it was egoistic and would appeal to the puerile curiosity of readers who viewed him as a kind of celebrity. And so Wolf and Twain, in a different way, explained the popularization of the personal essays in part through the saturation of the media environment in which they live. And Anna captures the millennial iteration of this saturation in many of her descriptions of immediacy. And so one of the things I wanted to grapple with is why does our preferred mode of representation turn narcissistic during these periods when we are inundated by new, more accessible, maybe more diversified cultural products? And how does the the personal narrative jump 
the media divide in those moments from the literary genres that we've been talking about primarily from books and periodicals into things that Anna talks about far more in, in her book project, right? Things like film and television. And I think for all of us, somewhat importantly, those dastardly feeds that, you know, we feel compelled to be part of, even though, to go back to a conversation that we were talking about earlier, there is no clear connection between what the algorithm does on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and what it does in promoting our work on LA Review of Books or the New Yorker or University of Chicago Press, right? Like the relationship between what we feel compelled to do to promote ourselves and the actual circulation of our work, I can say with great certainty as somebody who gets to see behind the firewall at the Center for Mark Twain Study like what happens on Twitter bears no resemblance to how many podcasts we download or how many people come to our website or anything like that. The numbers don't link up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's sort of interesting to me about this, this question of like the work that we do to support the work that we do. Well, but you're assuming that we're doing the work in order to promote the work, but sometimes you're doing it for different mm-hmm reasons, right? Yeah. And that's the jump I want to be like, sort of aware of. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about how, well, I I mean, I'm thinking about maybe how all of us present, self-present in various feeds. So one of the things that I really like about Anna running V21 is, first of all, that it's not her name. (laughs) That, That feels like a very committed depersonalizing move. And I also really like her dumb polls. I really, really, really enjoy those. And I think that they often, by playing at a kind of naifishness or a kind of naivete or playing at thinking in binaries instead of thinking dialectically, then actually open onto these wonderful discussions about everything from, you know, James's prefaces to how we think about genre. And I don't think that that has anything to do with Anna promoting her work. I think that that has to do with Anna creating a kind of alternate space of engagement and of interest and of a kind of literary thinking together. And to me, that's one way that you can use these feeds that have nothing at all to do with promotion. You can use them to share archival work. You can use them to write kind of little reviews Mm -hmm. of things that you're not going to review at length, but you believe that it's important for people to read. You can use them to do a kind of small scale literary critical work that does not have to be personalized in any way, really. I mean, it it is in most cases because it is attached to a particular account with a particular name on it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not doing, as Anna put it, the work of, you know, describing your masturbation patterns and putting them into people's feeds. It's aspiring towards something, I think, more knowledge-based. I like that. So that's not a concern that I ever really have with, I mean, with with many people, yes, but not with the people in this room right now. (laughs) 
Well, and I, I really like that idea of like, to what extent in the peculiar media environment of the moment or these diversified media environments of, of the past, which seem to prequel a narcissistic turn, an egoistic turn, can we resist it by trying to do things with those new mediums, which are not you know, become an influencer, not self-promote, not raise my profile, but rather provide some service to this new audience. I mean, I'm going to say one more thing and then Anna, I'll shut up and let you talk. But the, the other thing I would say is I do think there are probably incredible opportunities right now for actually increasing access to the means of literacy. And I think that Anna talking about the textbook that she wrote is is one example of that. But I often think about what you could do on these platforms so that you are in part stimulating the feeling of being in a classroom for people who would never actually be able to access your classroom or the classrooms of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more that we can think about this dimension of work as having great pedagogical potential, the better it feels for for me at least or the more it feels like there's something that can be done with it that does not necessarily have to cleave to that paradigm of personalization and algorithmization is that the right mm-hmm. <laughs> am i putting that together yeah. actually it's a well, algorithmization yeah metricization automation so on and so forth yeah you might think differently and i don't know No, I agree. I think there's lots of potential to use platforms and technologies and media for purposes that are other than what their dominant uptake or dominant mobilization is. I think the question you asked, Matt, about like, why does sort of self-emanation seem to attend or avail itself as the logical mode in which to use social media or digital platforms, I think has a lot to do, again, with these kind of wider convergences of historical logics of like, well, the so-called digital revolution and so on, they're meant to solve these kinds of circulatory problems of like, how can we rapidly transfer information? How can we turn data itself into a source of value? How can we have instantaneous transfer solve the problem of like non-investment and non-productivity elsewhere? And then people, you know, inhabit those platforms as if instantaneity and emanation and effusion are the, you know, rhetorics that they require, but they're not. It is important to have a kind kind of strictly like politically dialectical approach to what the affordances of different media are that requires like thinking about these institutional convergences or the, the ways that the data companies happen to be served by us volunteering ever more fonts of information. And we are our own fonts, as it were, right? Our habits and our personas. We can use communication tools to communicate. That's what teaching can be propagating criticism, speaking to the audience that you wish you could have and the audiences that, as Merve says, right, are sort of increasingly lacking access to classrooms, lacking access to intellectual communities. How do we make these on a sidebar? The podcast here is a perfect example of it. Like, I have learned so much from listening to Matt's podcast, and I feel like how do we understand the criticism that indwells in these platforms, right? That isn't, it's not just two dudes, 
you know, shooting the shit or whatever. It's, you know, like there's real knowledge here. And like, how do we cite it or how do we? And so the, but the circulability of it works differently, right? And there are, I think, you know, like young theorists and philosophers and critics who I feel like I have a strong relationship to their work because I've listened to their podcasts while like folding laundry in the pandemic or something. And that's a different mode of cognition, is a different mode of literacy. But like, you know, I, I think we could have more elaborate answers to those questions about like, and then they have, they need institutional answers too. Like is Matt getting credit for tenure for producing these incredible work? Right. Right. I am. (laughs) (laughs) But not everybody who's doing this kind of work is, is absolutely important. And I mean, it's it's amazing to me, like, you know, one of the things that makes me feel the best about humanity is that 70% of YouTube content is instructional. (laughs) It, and, and it's how to fix your toilet, but it really is also how to understand Nietzsche, like in your basement with this friend, you know, and <laughs> there is a kind of hunger for actual knowledge that I think is a really meaningful counter to the hunger Merve was describing for personal effusion. That maps really nicely onto the wolf essay as well, Matt, because in her description of the appropriate context in which to wield the eye, the only appropriate context for her in which to wield the eye is when the eye is not both the subject of speech and its object. (laughs) So there must be a different object and the eye must be capable of merging perception with cognition or cogitation. And that has to be what is produced in the writing. And that is why speculation for her, how would I raise these children? Speculation doesn't do that because you don't even have an object there in the world. You're completely solipsistically trapped inside of your own counterfactual. But there is no object out there that you and someone else could look at together and be able to speak about it or be able to make judgments about it or be able to understand its kind of inner logic or its inner workings. And so the idea that what we need to do is redirect the attention of that eye to objects that are not identical to the speaking subject is completely essential to her at a time when increased circulation, increased education, means that similar to this time or the time that we are describing, that Anna is describing, there are people eager to just fill pages with content and that it's always easier to fill pages with content in which the self is both subject and object. I I like the way in that essay, the, the pressure to speak of oneself is mobilized in part by the pressure to read other people, right? (laughs) The pressure, like, you know, the fact that there's so much to read, so much to watch, you're inundated with all of this sort of expectation from other people, oftentimes to read their personal narratives, but just, you know, there's so much, right? And then that becomes a kind of excuse to, to turn yourself inward, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a fraught injunction and I feel like it's the effect of a lot of the kinds of auto theoretical texts that I'm really concerned about, right? Where it's just sort of like the mode of engagement you're supposed to have with them is a certain kind of titillation or a certain kind of sympathy or a certain kind of affective stimulation. And then 
to like successionally participate in it, like to write your own. It's not argumentative, right? Because you can't argue with someone's experience and it's not production of higher order or whatever, because it's not vectored towards concepts. It's like vectored towards like the, you know, ineffable particularity of the person, right? So what do you do? You reciprocate in your own fashion. To me, that is like a, a kind of linear accumulation that we are enjoined to try to hope for our own six-figure contract from whatever, not to make some built-up set of ideas that we then can capacitate other kinds of analysis. Is it that those works aren't geared toward concepts, or is it that they've actually stolen concepts that other people have worked out and kind of watered them down to a point where they are not even recognizable as doing the kind of intellectual work. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the Argonauts, right? right? And I'm thinking about how my, my huge frustration with that book is just how very feeble the presentation of queer theory is in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And how it does absolutely nothing while taking kind of liberally from a long academic tradition of thinking in queer theory, it relegates that to the margins and centers the experience. It centers the experience. And so when people read that as doing a kind of serious citational work in the margins, I just always want to say, but it's in the margins. Right. <laughs> like, right. look what's in the middle. And so to me, it's not exactly that it's not conceptual at all, but it's that the concepts are like, they're, they're merely ornamental or something. Right. They're there to bedazzle the self-expression. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. when I say vector differently, I feel like this is exactly the opposite direction of the kinds of like auto-theoretical work we would see in the 70s, right? And so like, I'm extremely, extremely unsympathetic to the argument that like Maggie Nelson is just stealing black women's work from the past or that auto that auto theory is the term we use for men now that they discovered this like 70s feminist idiom i think it's completely the opposite direction of like what's happening in terms of what the use of the personal testimony to try to generate concepts in the 1970s is completely different from the use of concepts to bedazzle personal testimony in 2021 and the reasons for that difference have to do with the different institutional situations of higher education and of publishing, as well as um, the attack on institutions for producing knowledge and institutions for producing selves. What do we have that's different from the 1970s to 2021 is like the complete responsibilization of every family unit and individual for their own auto manifestation. There's also a genre difference, right? Which is that a lot of that kind of theoretical work where it was being merged with the personal or with personal testimony was happening within the genre of the manifesto. It was happening within a more collective genre and within actual collectives. Right. As opposed to happening within the memoir. Right. As a genre. Right. And that seems different to me. That's a good place to pick up with a question I know I want to get to, that I feel like I sort of have a responsibility to get to. For both of you, it's fair to say that the personal narrative is a kind of cop-out, a kind of concession to liberalism's toxic myths, a substitution of I for we, individual for collective, competition for solidarity, and therefore an impediment to 
you know, dialectical historicism, institutionalism, and I used the, the term earlier, uh, macroeconomic structural analysis, political economy of mass media, so on and so forth. The memoir, the personal essay, autofiction, these are genres of liberalism without any promise of liberation. But I want to ventriloquize what I expect is the most common objection, that personal narrative is, in fact, resistant to hegemonic ideology. Uh, it thwarts the universalist, the objectivist, the orthodoxy, by honestly acknowledging horizons of perception, knowledge, expertise. The private individual prescribes necessary limits on what we can claim to know. And accordingly, the personal narrative boom is a healthy symptom of postmodernism, right? epitomized by new journalists like Joan Didion and, and Hunter S. Thompson, and becomes the dominant mode of millennialism, in part because it conditions us to distrust organizing myths like American exceptionalism, globalization, white supremacy, so on and so forth, right? How do you rebut that counter-argument? This is a case where one probably needs to think at the level of individual essays, right? How are they deploying their ex experiential testimony, their corporeal fullness, and so on, in the service of those modes of contestation? But also, are those modes of contestation actually all they're cracked up to be? Is it really the case that we need, you know, to be skeptical of expertise? Is it really the case that we need to discount study? <laughs> knowledge, the accumulated accrued progress of traditions, actually. Is it really the case that performing or presenting, emanating one's misery as a counter to forces of immiseration? I don't actually think so. And I think that there's a kind of pharmacon effect there of like us being wholly absorbed in sadistic ways and spectacular ways, in immobilizing ways in these really soul-bearing kinds of texts without any kind of galvanization towards collective action to ameliorate them. You have to look at how it happens at the level of the page. It's not like there aren't personal essays that might inspire people to actually do different things. But how is the personal essay a convocation, right? How is it an incitement? How is it a genre that makes collectivization possible. And to me, a big issue there is the description of the animation of unlived experience, right? The, the production of like insight, knowledge, revelation, information, illumination that people can participate in no matter what their location. To me, the only essays that can really lay claim to doing what you're describing, Matt, are ones in which the subject has taken some kind of measure to speak collectively or to depersonalize their utterance, and also essays in which the subject is not beholden to the problematic of the private individual, in part because they are someone or they belong to a group to whom personhood has been denied. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of imminent critique mm -hmm. in the essay of the problematic of the private individual. And to me, the most obvious example of this is Baldwin's Stranger mm -hmm. in the Village. Right. But 
I think that those are vastly the exception <laughs> rather than the norm. And all of the economic and industry-wide and institutional structures that we have been talking about conspire to make even those essays written today more complicit in the maintenance of various kinds of political, economic hegemonies than actually resistant to them. I don't know. I'm very suspicious of the language of resistance. Anyway, I always feel mo like mildly embarrassed whenever, <laughs> whenever I even start to think about it as a possibility, let alone when we ascribe it to art objects, which mm -hmm. cannot be disentangled from these contexts of production and reception and circulation. And yeah. so I think often resistance is a kind of ideology that we project onto certain kinds of objects because we want to continue to believe in spaces of artistic or aesthetic autonomy. But maybe that just isn't a sustainable belief. Yeah. Right. We need things that actually capacitate other kinds of action, right? Yeah. Strategic thinking, collocation. There's a series of theorists, notably Frederick Jameson, Mark Fisher, Lee Claire LaBerge uh, and Alison Schankweiler, who have popularized the period, periodization of late capitalism, uh, beginning in the 1970s and correlated with a particular aesthetic, which Fisher then dubbed capitalist realism. In your forthcoming book, you attempt to mark a shift from late capitalism to what you are, with a kind of dark wit, calling too late capitalism. How does this hyper-contemporary perception, which I'm, I'm tempted to associate it with Kim Stanley Robinson's and other works of utopian and dystopian climate fiction, what does this perception that we are kind of past a tipping point for adequate collective responses to climate change, kleptokanzianism, and other global crises, how does it inform our cultural products? Like after capitalist realism comes what? capitalist naturalism? Yeah, no, that's such a good question. So, you know, I'm not trying to be too cutesy. I think there is a danger of like micro periodizing, right? And obviously what I'm interested in is that kind of situation in which the cultural products and cultural styles, cultural representation are modulating differently the same underlying economic crises that also characterize postmodernism, but have been um, extremized. I think that the uh, our ability to fasten on to the notion even of what, say, stagnation as a crisis is, looked different in the 1980s than it does now, you know, when all of our official talking heads even sign on to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's kind of a consensus about a multi-decade era of stagnation, if there is also irrevocable <laughs> consensus about it being too late, and also that knowledge itself being of little use, that we have had the science, we have had <laughs> the policy papers, we've had even the, you know, UN consensus since 1988, and yet nothing has happened, right? That knowledge isn't power, knowledge isn't action, that there's a certain kind of just relationship to a collapsed futurity that enchains us in a kind of present, which I think of as 
as a relative of the loss of historical consciousness that Jameson is interested in postmodernism, but an even more of a kind of collapsing. And what that immanentization does, I think, is really put a lot of strain on representation. It's not just that we can't imagine the future because, it's, you know, imaginings aren't really what we, what we need, right? It's that I think that there's a wholesale kind of abandoning and forswearing of projects of representation and of projection and of symbolization because everything is just too close with us. There's an inability to get a kind of distance on things. And that's really, really distorting aesthetic cultural production. And I would say kind of motivating a real evacuation of representation. So really these kind of anti-fictional tendencies that we also could associate with the authentic selfness that we were discussing earlier, but also kind of extremity and spectacularization, evacuation of plot, evacuation of narrativity in both visual and literary representation, a kind of just resignation of the office of theory in terms of like taking any distance from our circumstances. To me, too lateness is a is a, is fundamentally like a, a style. I don't want it to be too witty as a micro periodization that actually occludes things. But it's also, I think, trying to look for what is still like possible within that desperate loss, within that desperate resignation is too fucking late. But that is precisely why we still have to do things because it can get worse. And so it could get less worse. And so there's a kind of injunction for me and like what that urgency is, but to think about that urgency dialectically, not as a end to action or an alibi for inaction, or like I see a lot of resignation as a, as a kind of um, theoretical and political posture, but something else, a different kind of injunction. You kind of aside to this or, or hint at this in the chapter I read, but I, I do wonder if there is a kind of torturous irony here in that one of the ways of thinking about contemporary aesthetics or contemporary cultural products is that in this moment of too late capitalism, they have sort of lost the desire for a kind of legacy. Uh -huh. We oftentimes applaud the end of the sort of new critical consensus and right the, the sort of T.S. Eliot idea of the the canon and, you know, authors trying to shoehorn their way into some sort of Western tradition. Right. I don't want to in any way say that that we should go back to that. But that sense of legacy has been something that sometimes motivated artists, writers, certainly motivated Mark Twain. When there is no future, <laughs> is there an aesthetic change endemic to writing, producing, making movies, films, et cetera, without thinking about entering your work into a canon that's going to have life into a, a distant future? I feel that acutely when I think about the failure to reproduce the professoriate and like people who would consume scholarly research, you know, so who is this book for? And that's, yeah, absolutely. To me, one of the only eternal facts about human beings is that we make art, right? Like abstraction has been part of, of human activity when we didn't have time for it, right? You know, for 70,000 years, before we knew how to make ritual burial, before we knew how to like not die of starvation, right? Like art is integral. This kind of excessive creative play is integral to human existence. And if you look at the near future of extinction, that 
does provide a kind of explanation for why people might think there's no such thing as art anymore, right? Why there might be all this subtracting of representation down to just like effulgent self and um, what is concretely here and the intensities of the body and affect and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that that's a really potentially symptomatic formation that that artists are confronting our, our end. And nobody is good at thinking about death, right? And we're really not good at thinking about species death. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. There's a, a couple of things I, I was hoping to get to that and I'm not going to have adequate time for. I, I, I did just do it. Do it. He's going to be like a class. <laughs> I was reminded of the conversation I was having with Michelle Chihara and Heather Berg a couple of weeks ago. We recorded an episode that's going to be coming out soon. And Heather has a new book called Porn Work. One of the chapters that I really found fascinating and unsettlingly identified with, it has the title, I'm kind of always working, but it's almost always really fun. It sort of captured the lives of academics, right? We are kind of in this nesting doll of side hustles. <laughs> Anna shared earlier the Melinda Cooper piece that is sort of rethinking the era of neoliberalism by transitioning from the narrative of deindustrialization to the family business, the sort of promotion and then betrayal of the family business. It's reminded me of this sort of problem of work-life balance, even in professional contexts where our professional work is very satisfying. And you are both very, very productive scholars and teachers. And yet I imagine you can also empathize with this sort of narrative as Heather presents it. How do you find a way to make time for yourself and not become the objects which you analyze, theorize, critique? Matt, haven't you heard what we've been talking about? We don't want to make space for ourselves. <laughs> I'm happy being my own object of sociological analysis. I think even that framing of work and life is, is disingenuous. It's disingenuous. And I think from a feminist perspective, if we think about the work of social reproduction, it's completely ridiculous to think about separating work and life. Anna and I both have kids. We know what domestic labor looks like and what it feels like, and we know it's a continuation of the kind of intellectual labor that we do. So those two things cannot be kind of separated by a hyphen uh, into work and life and imagined as being in some kind of balance with one another. They're completely structured, I think, by the same sets of forces, at least for me. I agree. And that merging, you know, is not without its pleasures. Um, and it's not without its ways of actually um, aligning academics and critics with the ways that other people are made to work and live, not just the ideology of like the creative economy, but just like the always hustling, you know, kind of mode. So I think that being out of balance just puts us in connection with the other workers we have things in common with, not to understate like the difference in bodily experience and so on between somebody who works in an Amazon warehouse and somebody who teaches or organizes in a university context, but not to overstate that difference either, right? That we're all subject to these incredible imperatives for productivity. And some of us can find pockets of enjoyment in them. That was Anna Cornblue and Merve Imre. I'm Matt Siebel. For more about this episode, 
please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash auto everything. Next time, I'll be speaking with Leclerc Leberge and Rachel Greenwald-Smith about decommodified labor, compromise, and selling out during the Great Resignation. In the meantime, here's Dan Reeder with this season's theme song. I got all, I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need.